0: We're going to turn to God's word now, and we're going to read from Luke chapter 22, the gospel of Luke chapter 22, I'm going to read from verse 31 to 34, and then we're going to go down to verse 54 to 62, this is Luke's account of Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's hear God's word from Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, Jesus says, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me and down at verse 54 then they seized him that is Jesus and led him away bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter was following at a distance and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together Peter sat down among them then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said this man also was with him but he denied it saying woman i do not know him and a little later someone else saw him and said you also are one of them But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembering the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Amen. On March the 15th, 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated. A group of Roman senators cornered Jesus in a hallway, surrounded him, drew out knives, and stabbed him multiple times, leaving him to die. As a result, of the assassination, the the Roman Empire fell into political turmoil and civil war for several years that didn't end until a battle, the Battle of Philippi a few years later. What makes this assassination even more shocking is that among the conspirators was a man called Marcus Junius Brutus. Brutus, Marcus Brutus was a close friend. Of Julius Caesar. He had been on many military campaigns with him. He had fought in the wars with him. But he wasn't just a close friend. Caesar regarded him as an adopted son. He was Caesar's adopted son. He was very close to him. And apparently what happened was uh, Caesar initially resisted and tried to fight back the senators as they drew the knife and stabbed him. But when he saw Marcus Junius Brutus there and drawing out his knife and, and coming to stab him, he took his robe and put it over his head and he said, you too, Brutus, you too, My my friend, my adopted son, you also, you assassinate me? Treachery is always worse when it is done by a close friend and confident. As shocking as that is, even more shocking is this simple fact that Jesus Christ was abandoned by everyone. All his disciples, even the the close inner three, James, John and Simon Peter, they abandon him. The gospel writers are at pains as Jesus gets closer to the cross to highlight this reality. It's as if all the lights get switched off. It's as if they're in the building and every light gets switched off. And there's only one left focusing on one person. And his name is Jesus. Because the gospel writers want us to see that there is only one savior. There is only one person whom we need to trust and put our faith in, and it's Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting how the Bible never hides the moral failings of its heroes and heroines? You could, you, it starts, doesn't it, with Adam and Eve. And it goes on with Abraham twice, twice lying about his wife, pretending she's her sister, his sister, so that he can can save his own skin. We get to David who murders, commits adultery. We get to doubting Thomas. We get to Peter who denies three times. See, the Bible knows nothing of hagiography. You know what hagiography is? If you're a historian, you will. Historians who write hagiography write the past as if they never made any mistakes. Christians tend to do this. You read Christian biographies of our our, our heroes. I actually think it's immensely unhelpful and discouraging. And what you read is as if the person they're writing about never did anything wrong. Every decision they made was perfect. Everything they said was just laced with angelic glory. It's not true, is it? The Bible doesn't do that. There was only one person. Only one person who is sinless and impeccable, who never breaks God's laws and commands, and it's Jesus Christ. He alone. And as much as the Bible, then, doesn't hide the moral failings of the saints, it also does emphasize the unique and singular person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this in just a moment. As much as we focus on Peter, we're going to see, actually, Peter is the black backdrop. To see the glory of Jesus Christ. Even his denial is emphasizing the singular majesty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what do we make of this denial then? Well, the Bible's like a mirror, isn't it? We look at the Bible and we get our own reflection back in many ways. Notice three things with me about Peter's denial three things that it highlights about Peter, but also about us. And here's the first one it's his weakness. Peter's weakness is being highlighted in technicolor before us. Peter was the most confident and self-assured of the disciples. He was always the first person to speak. He was the guy with the firm, you know, the firm jutting jaw and the Greek Adonis-like body You would charge in first to the room and command your attention. When Jesus says, who do the crowd say I am? Who steps forward to answer Peter? When he says, who do you say I am? He says... It's Peter who comes and says, you're the Christ. He even rebukes Jesus on one occasion. He's so self-assured. Do you remember that? When Jesus first tells his disciples, a time's coming very soon when I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. On the third day, I'll be risen again. What does Peter do? He takes the living, eternal Son of God aside and says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. And Jesus has to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. Peter is this self-assured, confident man. And yet, at this moment, what happens? Where's his self-assurance? Where's his confidence? We read a servant girl. A servant girl, she's not even named. She's a nobody. Just takes a little voice. Turns to him and says, weren't you one of them? Weren't you one of the disciples? Didn't you know Jesus? And what does he do? Where's all his self-assured bravado? It disappears. He moves to the gateway because he was in the light around the fire, as if to get into the shadow so he wouldn't be seen again. But he's asked again, and he's asked a third time. On all three occasions, he vehemently denies that he knows Jesus Christ. And have no doubt about it. This isn't a kind of a white lie. This isn't some sort of prevarication buying for time. You know, when someone asks you an awkward question. Well, which Jesus? Which one are you talking about? Jesus? Can you spell that name for me? I'm not sure. Is he buying for time here? No, 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 no. He's vehement. He says, I don't know him. At the time, the Jewish leaders, the 70 leaders of the Sanhedrin, who had control over the temple worship... If you committed certain heinous sins, they would call you in front of them and they would pronounce a curse on you. They would say, we do not know you. We do not know you. They were effectively exiling you from the Jewish community, excommunicating you from worship, saying you have nothing to do with us. We curse you. That's exactly what Peter's doing here. He's cursing Jesus. He's, He's exiling him. He's excommunicating him. He's saying, I don't know this man. I want nothing to do with him. May the curses of heaven fall upon him. He's not even a Jew to me. Where's all the brash, overconfident, impetuous Peter? At this moment, he is exposed to be utterly weak, a shipwreck of the Christian faith, and totally unreliable. He appeared strong. He had self-inflated views of himself. But now, where is he? He's not the man he thought he was. And This is something we need to hear ourselves, isn't it? Do not underestimate your own weakness. Do not underestimate your own weakness. We're no better than Peter. We're as weak, if not weaker than Peter. Oh, you can put the show on. I can put the show on. I'm an alpha male. I climb trees wrestle bears, swim oceans, I don't. I like to think you think I do. But what, 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 when, when, in reality, I'm just a little child, weak and utterly unreliable. Let me ask you, what would you have done as you read this story? What would you have done if you were one of the disciples and someone, a little servant girl turned to you and said, weren't you one of them? They're about to crucify Jesus. What would you have done? I'll tell you what you'd have done. You'd have done what I would have done which is what Peter did, because we're as weak and as unreliable as Peter is. I've got a friend of mine who was born and raised in the Middle East, in a Muslim country. And with some friends, he began, he became a Christian, he began a mission to his own people. There were nine of them. Began 30 years ago. He no longer lives in the Middle East, but he travels in regularly. Of those nine people, he's the only one still alive. The other eight have been captured, killed or disappeared. And every time he goes back into his home country to witness to and preach and teach and build up the underground church, he knows he's putting his life at risk. And one day he said to me, Andy, you know when I go, I never find out the surnames of the Christians. I said to him, why? Why wouldn't you want to know their surnames? It's an odd thing, isn't it? He said, because if I'm captured and I'm tortured, I will tell the authorities the full name. And they will then know who the Christian is that I have met, and they will go and get them as well. He knows his own weakness. None of the Hollywood bravado that if I was you know, being tortured for, for my faith, Tell me the names of of the the ministers, elders, and members of Christ's Prayers Houston. None of this, well, I would resist. You know, I'll be there for you. I'll stick up. The reality is every single one of us, given a couple of hours of torture, will say anything. My friend knows it. He knows the lesson from Peter. He knows the lesson of our own weakness. Let me ask you this before I move on. Are there any sins you don't think you would commit? I've heard Christians say this. I could never do that. Oh, I've, I struggle with this, but I can never do that. Beware, lest thinking you stand, you fall, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12. Given the right circumstances, the right pressures, the right strains, all of us could do anything. All of us could, we could even deny our Savior. We're all as weak as Peter is. Notice, secondly, his dependence. He's not only weak, he is dependent upon God. Let me ask you this question. What's different about Judas and Peter? You see, Judas doesn't just deny Jesus three times. He goes the full way. He betrays him and assassinates him and cannot come back. He commits apostasy where there is no return and he ends up taking his own life. We read, don't we, at the end of what we read in verse 62, and he went out and went bitterly. Peter, Peter's weeping bitterly at his own sin, but why doesn't he go further? We know how the story goes and I'm going to get there in a minute. He gets restored. He becomes useful for Jesus Christ. But what's the difference? What's the difference between Judas... And Peter, why does Judas fall with no return and Peter fall with every return? Well, here's the difference. And we read it in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What did Peter do? What, what, what step stopped him from falling even further like Judas? Did he kind of go into a quiet corner? go on a spa weekend away, look at himself in the mirror and say, Peter, Simon Peter, you've got it in you. You're good enough. You're great enough. You can do it. Is that what he did? That's what our world would say we need to do. No, 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 what stopped him? The only difference between Judas and Peter was Jesus was praying. It had nothing to do with him. Jesus prayed for him. Jesus knew, as we see, Jesus knew he was going to deny him. And knowing he was going to deny him, he prayed for him. And the language is very interesting. In verse 31, the you is plural. Simon, Simon, the devil wanted to sift you, as in all the disciples. But the next verse, the you is singular. But I prayed for you. Jesus personally interceded at the throne of grace for Peter, knowing he was going to deny him. That is the only thing. That is the only thing that kept him from falling even further. And this is actually wonderfully comforting for every single one of us because what's Jesus Christ doing now? Is Jesus taking a vacation in heaven? He died. He rose again. He ascended on high. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? He's praying. He's praying for you. He's praying for every single one of his people in the singular It's as if he prays for Richard Harris and Andy Young and every one of his people as he intercedes and prays, even as we're sinning. Don't let them sin anymore. Hold them back from the worst of what they'll do. That's what Jesus is doing, isn't it amazing and so immensely encouraging. This is highlighting for us Peter's absolute dependence upon Jesus Christ, even when he's sinning it gets even better. He's not just dependent on Jesus' prayer, he's dependent on Jesus' love. Did you notice that throwaway comment in verse 60, 61? But Peter said, he denies him the third time, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That look, here's Peter in the very moment of denying Jesus for the third time. The cock crows. And Peter looks up and Jesus turns his head and connects his eyes with this Peter, perhaps 20 or 30 yards away, connects with him. And on one hand, I can only imagine, and the text tells us, Peter remembers what Jesus had just said just an hour or so before, and the crashing and crushing reality of the blackness of his own denial floods in upon him. But I don't think it was just a look that that, that exposed his sin. I think it was a look of love. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, once said this of this verse. I think that look was a heart-piercing look. But also a heart-healing look, all in one. A look which revealed to Peter the blackness of his sin and also the tenderness of his master's heart towards him. That look from Jesus was a look of love. It was a look saying, even as you're sinning, even as you're denying me and cursing me, I am looking over you. I am am watching over you. I am loving you. My face is turned towards you, caring for you. And this is highlighting for us, isn't it, not just that Peter was dependent on Jesus' prayer, but he's dependent on Jesus' love, even as he's sinning. Did you know that? When I first began thinking through this several years ago, I thought this was heresy, what I was about to tell you. But it's not. It's pristine, beautiful, glorious biblical religion. As we're sinning, Jesus still loves us. Did you know that? Even as we are shaking the fist at him, he is opening his arms out uh, with an embrace of love to win us back. That's how loving he is towards us. And we depend on that love for everything. This is why John would write in one of his epistles that, that, that we are, it's God who has loved us first. It's his love that's first, not ours. Our love is a responses lo- responsive love, not an initiating love. God's is the initiating love. Ours simply responds to the love that's already towards us. Even as we are sinning. No wonder. And some of you know how the story goes in John 21. I'm not going to read it to you. Let me paraphrase. No wonder after the resurrection, these disconsolate disciples return to doing the one thing they thought they were good at, but they actually aren't, which is fishing and they get the boat and they take the net out and they've been out all night and they throw the net over and they catch nothing how depressing they can't even return to their previous career and then this man appears on the beach and shouts out to them have you caught any fish? no we've been fishing all night I haven't caught a thing and he says why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat so they've got nothing better to do so they do and they immediately catch 153 fish and they realize that man is Jesus and so they get the, the fish in don't they? they, they, they kind of Get the fish into the boat, and you can see them frantically rowing back. Only one person doesn't. It's Peter. Remember what Peter does? He doesn't stay to help his fellow disciples pull in the fish and row back. He takes off his outer garment and he dives in. And he swims faster than Michael Phelps could to get back to Jesus. Why? He's denied him, he hasn't seen him before. Shouldn't he be ashamed? Shouldn't he be embarrassed? No. Yes, he's ashamed and embarrassed. Of course he is. But there's an overriding reality. And it's this. That look from Jesus. He knows that he's welcome back. He knows that his savior, despite his denials, will have him back. And so he can't wait to get near this Jesus. Do you know how weak you are? It's the first step in the Christian life, actually. It's the first step in the Christian life. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That's the first step. The first step is acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. Acknowledge your weakness. But then not not only that, the second step is you need to know how dependent you are. Dependent on God for everything and dependent on his love even while you are sinning. Have you ever realized that? You know, it's wonderfully liberating actually. I know you might be sitting there going, goodness, this is hardcore came to church for a kind of spiritual pick-me-up, and there's this guy from Wales beating us up, telling us we're all weak and dependent. Do you know it's actually the most liberating thing? The worst thing I could tell you is you've got it. You're good enough. Find some sort of inner strength. That would be to put shackles on you that you'll never escape from because you're not good enough, and neither am I. It's actually wonderfully liberating to know that you're weak and you're dependent, but God still loves you. Notice the third thing. Just very briefly, and that's the pattern of service. We've seen weakness and dependence. Isn't it remarkable what Peter does? After this, we can read it in the early chapters of Acts, and many of you will know what happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, and instead of being this impetuous, brash, alpha male, he becomes a humble, courageous, confident preacher of the gospel. Not relying on himself, but relying on God. And he goes on, the Sanhedrin, again, not a, not a servant girl anymore, the Sanhedrin call him in and say, well, you've got to stop preaching this, Jesus. And he goes, I oh, can't do that. I've got to keep preaching, and he does. And so the gospel advances. What happens to Peter? What happens to Peter is, he experiences his own existential death and resurrection. Jesus has taught him, through this experience, that he's not going to be useful He can't use him until he realizes his own bankruptcy. He can't use him for the kingdom until he begins to begin to learn his own weakness and dependence. And what we have here is this pattern. This is the way God works. It is when we're ready to acknowledge our weakness that God is ready to use us. It's when when we know our dependence that we are now a safe tool in his hands. It was Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, who once said this, God chose me because I was weak enough. He trained somebody to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses them. What's God training you for? Did you know that? And sometimes it hurts a lot. But as your father, he will risk a bit of pain to make you better in his service. He will train you. He will expose your weakness. He will bring you to an end of yourself so that then you can trust in him and be useful in his service. Uh, Another guy, Vance Havner, said this, the Lord had the strength and I had the weakness. So we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. Isn't that lovely? That's what God does. This is the pattern of service. God will break us so that he can then remake us and we can be useful for him. We've seen these three things about Peter and about ourselves, weakness and dependence and pattern of service. This should change everything, as I conclude, shouldn't it? Two things that should change. It should change the way we relate to one another. What's our response when someone falls or fails or sins? What's your response? I know my response is very often to judge. Oh, I told you so. Just a matter of time. Should we not have compassion? There go I, but for the grace of God. So the saying goes, and it's a very true saying. Or as another missionary, F.B. Meyer, once wrote. He said, I believe when you see a brother or sister in sin, there are two things we don't know, and we need to remind ourselves of. First, we don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin. Second, we do not know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. And thirdly, he said there were only two, but he gave us three. We don't know what we would have done in the same circumstances. So when you hear of a fellow brother or sister falling or sinning, or a report of them falling or sinning, train yourself to think, I could have done the same or worse. I'm weak just like they are. They need my help. They need the love of Jesus, not, not, not the judgment that I can bring on them, not the ostracization. They need my help. They need my, my, my encouragement. So it should change the way we relate to one another, but shouldn't it also change the way we think about Jesus Christ? Isn't it just absolutely stunning? It's just absolutely stunning that our Jesus uses the broken things in this world. Julius Caesar looked up and saw Marcus Junius Brutus say, "You too?" Question mark. I thought it was bad enough, but you—you you know, Jesus does the same to Peter. Only he doesn't end it with a question mark; it's an exclamation mark. "You too, Peter. You're going to betray, betray me. But I'm going to use that betrayal in your life and in my service of redemption." This is what Jesus does, he uses the broken things, the sinful things, for his own glory. Let me finish with a a final illustration, I don't know if you've heard of an Italian violinist called Niccolò Paganini, have you heard of Niccolò Paganini, he lived in the, I'll probably get it wrong, I think it was the 1700s, he was hugely famous, just enormously famous, and he was also a brilliant violinist. Wherever he played, crowds would follow him and want his autograph and listen to him play. And one night he was playing in a packed out theater. And he was playing some of the hardest violin pieces, some of the masterpieces. And halfway through, as he was playing, one of the strings on his violin broke. Well, unperturbed, the guy's brilliant after all. He just adjusts. And playing on three strings, he just continues as if nothing's happened. I used to play the violin, don't ask me to play now, I'm useless, but I do know you can move up octaves on the violin and so he just adjusted and it was fine. Five minutes later, believe it or not, another string broke. So he's now playing on two strings, doesn't change anything for him because he's brilliant and he just keeps playing as if nothing's happened, doesn't change the piece, just keeps going. A few minutes later, you won't believe this but you should because it is a true story, a third string broke didn't change anything. Paganini just carries on playing, and just the crowd who were were aware of this and the orchestra behind him just couldn't believe it. So when he finished this masterpiece, they just automatically rose to their feet and gave him a standing ovation. They'd just seen a masterpiece done on a one-string violin. And Paganini hushed them. said, you need to sit down. What about the encore? So he played another piece on a one-string violin to their even more amazement. Brilliant. Do you know, I love that because that's what our God does with us. He takes a one-string violin, and by the way, in this illustration you're not Paganini, okay? And neither am I, just want to make that clear. You're the broken violin, you're the one-string violin, who would play that? Who would take a one-string violin and play a masterpiece concert to the, to the amazement of all who could hear what our God does? That's exactly what our God does. He doesn't need a four-string violin. He doesn't need a Stradivarius. He uses even our sin for his glory. And that's why the Christian gospel is just so glorious. Because we can be honest about ourselves with God and with each other. We can know our weakness and our dependence, but even in our weakness and our dependence, we can know we are more loved and can be more used than we can even imagine. So why don't you bring your nothing? You know, that's what church is all about. Bring your nothing. Come with your nothings. Come with your brokenness. Come with your sin. And what our God will do is he'll take it and he'll play a masterpiece for his glory to the amazement of our world and the angels in heaven may he be praised let's pray together oh lord our god how glorious is the good news of jesus christ how glorious it is that you are brutally honest with us about our weakness and dependence and yet you use us anyway oh lord help us help us to come to you with our nothings so that you would do everything Use us in the week ahead, in our lives, in all that we are. Help us, we pray, for your glory. Amen.